Under the Tree, a seminar on freedom with Bill Ayers. Welcome back to Under the Tree, a seminar on freedom. That was Tom Morello with Let Freedom Ring. We appreciate Tommy as he opens each episode, inviting us to reignite the crackling fuse of possibility. Tom's a wizard with a guitar, a founding member of the rock group Rage Against the Machine, and Tom's also a political activist who deploys his art and energy on behalf of freedom fighters everywhere, from striking nurses and teachers to domestic workers and Black Lives Matter organizers to veterans against war. He extends his solidarity to every impulse toward peace, justice, and freedom. So thank you, Tom, for all you do. I'm Bill Ayers, and Malik Aleem, Light Ali, and I are gathered here with you for our seminar on freedom. Today we're broadcasting from Chicago, a city whose name means in the Algonquin language, river whose shores are lined with wild leeks. Multiple waterways converge here, and so Chicago is home to many indigenous peoples and nations, including the Three Fires Confederacy, the Potawatomi, the Ojibwe, and the Odawa. We acknowledge them, thank them, and honor the history of stolen land and resources, a history of a willful, deliberate, and systemic American genocide. And we pledge to keep our eyes and our hearts open in our shared struggle for peace and repair, justice and joy, balance and love. We're transmitting, as always, on the Freedom Frequency, calling on you to join us as we tune in and look uneasily at the world we've inherited and search for spaces of enlightenment and liberation, places where we can develop our freedom dreams and organize our revolutions. We typically begin each episode with a poem, and I want to pause here to remind you why that little exercise in it is an important ritual for me and for us, and I think it could well be for you as well. I read poems to my students at the start of class as a way to mark an ending as well as a beginning. We can close our eyes if we choose, breathe deeply, and note that the going world is outside the door, and here we will move at a different and perhaps a more measured pace. I read Billy Collins' introduction to poetry when we began months ago and urge you to take his advice seriously. Give yourself up to the poem. Breathe it in and breathe it out. And don't ask what it means, but consider how it means. That is, how it feels to you, what it awakens, the voyages it inspires or encourages. Collins advises us to never tie a poem to a chair or beat it with a hose. Rather, we should read it aloud, meditate on it for a moment, and then read it a second time. Like circle time or yoga in an elementary classroom, this is our call to attention, our moment of Zen. Later, I argued that poetry can remind us of the centrality of the arts and of humanism as principle, guide, and source in all of our pursuits, our lives as humans, our efforts as students and teachers, citizens and residents, our projects as workers and creators, organizers, radicals, and revolutionaries. And I've talked here with several brilliant poets, including Eve Ewing and Tongo Eisen Martin. 
Great poetry is not a donkey carrying obedient sentiment in pretty forms, Jane Hirschfield writes, but rather it is a bird of prey tearing open whatever needs to be opened. And Langston Hughes invents an entire vocabulary to underline the potential power of poetry to illuminate, to educate, to nourish the human core. Poetry possesses the power of worryation. Poetry can both delight and disturb. It can interest folks. It can upset folks. Poetry can convey both pleasure and pain. And poetry can make people think. If poetry makes people think, it might make them think constructive thoughts, even thoughts about how to change themselves, their town, and their state for the better. Some poems, like many of the great verses in the Bible, can make people think about changing all mankind, even the whole world. Poems, like prayers, possess power. Some episodes back, I cited a few lines from Lawrence Ferlinghetti's long lyrical piece in answer to the perennial question, what is poetry? Here are a few lines. Poetry is news from the frontiers of consciousness. Poetry is the street talk of angels and devils. Poetry is the anarchy of the senses making sense. Poetry is all things born with wings that sing. Poetry is what exists between the lines. Poetry is made with the syllables of dreams. Poetry fits on a single page, yet it can fill a world and fits in the pocket of a heart. Poetry is the shadow cast by our streetlight imaginations. Like a bowl of roses, a poem should not have to be explained. Poetry should still be an insurgent knock on the door of the unknown. So yes, art is not all castles in the sky or pleasant decorations, and poetry is not always sweet and succulent. Poetry plays havoc, art troubles the mind and shakes up the taken for granted, and artists are in the business of disruption, opening our social imaginations and insisting that there's always more to know, new pathways to discover, fresh fuses to be lit. Always. I stumbled this week on a letter I'd written to the New York Times in 2002, and that, to my astonishment, they'd published. I wrote to object to a scathing editorial attack on Amiri Baraka, a leading light in the black arts movement, and at that time the poet laureate of New Jersey. Baraka had had the daring to challenge the official patriotic lockstep response to the 9-11 attacks in a long and audacious poem. The times went nuts. Here's my letter. The logic and structure of good journalism are poorly fitted for poetry. Spreading myths and printing falsehoods may violate the standards of a decent newspaper, but they are the very stuff of poetry. And that's why no one with an ounce of sense goes to Homer or Neruda or Shamborska or Dylan for the facts. When you instruct your readers that the proper response to reading Amiri Baraka is, quote, discussion and condemnation, you both confuse the register of poetry and you beg the question. The great Chicago poet Gwendolyn Brooks once asked, does man love art? Her response, man visits art but cringes. Art hurts. Art urges voyages. It may be difficult, as William Carlos Williams wrote, to get the news from poems, yet men die miserably every day for lack of what is to be found there. Okay, since we'll be talking to a comics artist in just a minute, our poem today is from a comic strip by the great Linda Berry. We found this strip in an article by the brilliant Chicago comics artist Ivan Brunetti, who writes, 
Comics are often likened to short stories and novels, or, more improbably, animated films, but in a sense they are also a kind of poetry, an incantation beckoning us to enter their world. The simplicity of their superficial concision can reveal surprising density, layers, and multivalence. In a poem, lines might form and fill a stanza, which literally means room. And so it is with comics, where panels could likewise be thought of as stanzas. Rows, columns, and or stair steps of panels, in turn, structure a page or an entire story of comics and give it its particular cadence. Even the simplest grid tattoos its rhythmic structure onto the page. Here's Linda Berry. Jump shot. The teenager name of Richard comes out late some nights to shoot baskets on our corner. You can watch him from my bedroom window. You can lie on the bed and hear the ball, the ping-ping of it against the street bouncing. You can hear him walk it, then run it and do his perfect hook shot. Bounce, 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 stop. The fast no sound of his feet in the air. The ball flying up. Pause, then wham wham against the backboard, a high bounce off the rim, him whispering son of a bitch, him jumping up on the corner, him jumping high and turning in the air under a street light with a thousand million bugs flying around it going wild, wild, wild. That was Linda Berry, Jump Shot. Our second regular feature is a free write, but instead of writing today, I'd ask you to take a blank piece of paper divided into four squares, draw an image of yourself in each square. Okay, start drawing, and we'll be right here when you get back. Email us at underthetreepod at gmail.com to share your response to the writing prompt, or if you just want to introduce yourself and build community. You can also subscribe to our YouTube channel, Under the Tree Podcast, for clips and interviews, and follow us on Instagram at underthetreepodcast. It's time for our segment, Authors, Activists, Artists After Hours, something we call AHA, in which we talk to people who are writers, who are artists, who are activists, who can help us think hard about the questions that we are facing in the modern predicament. And I'm just delighted to have Ryan Alexander Tanner joining us under the tree. He is the artist who did the artwork for Under the Tree more than a year ago. He and I have co-authored one book and a couple of articles, and it's just a delight to see you, Ryan. Thanks for coming. Thank you for having me. You and I, as I said in the intro, you and I have worked together on a couple of projects, and maybe we would start at the beginning and talk a little bit about how we met and uh, and then dive into the the book we did together and the seriousness and the intent of that book. So talk a bit about how we met. Well, that's a funny one, actually, because I was in high school in the 90s. Uh, it's getting to be long enough ago that I don't like to say when it was. But uh, my I would say my best friend in high school was Sonia, who is your niece. I had a history class, and we had to do a documentary project. I remember this really well, actually. I've been in touch with that history teacher more recently. But uh, I asked if I could make a comic book, and she said, you know, I don't have any 
precedent for this. Like, if you can find a, a comic book that qualifies as a documentary, I, I would consider it. And then I showed her Mouse. Yeah. Uh, and then I think I gave it to her at the end of the week, and she looked at it over the weekend. And I remember this very clearly. Early in the week, she was like, "Man, I feel kind of I'm kind of humbled by this that I even made you qualify this." Again, this was in the '90s when we were. Uh, comics have made a lot of progress in this time, I would say. Uh, so anyway, uh, Sonia, my friend, suggested I interview her uncle for my documentary project, who was you. So I interviewed you over the phone, and I made, I don't know, a six-page comic or something, just about your experience at the Weather Underground. Um, and then, uh, what was it, ten years later or something? Uh, how did you come across, how did we cross paths again? Well, because I had written a book called To Teach, The Journey of a Teacher, uh, and it was published by Teachers College Press, uh, an academic press. And they had me do a second edition, and then they asked me to do a third edition, and I found the prospect so boring and tedious that I said rather flippantly, I'll do it if you allow me to make it a comic book. Mm -hmm. And I thought that would be the end of it. But instead, they came back three weeks later and said, okay, find an artist. Mm -hmm. And now I, I was kind of stuck with the idea. First of all, I loved comic books. I loved reading them. I didn't know much about them. You referenced Mouse. That's Art Spiegelman's stunning kind of um, world-turning comic book about the Holocaust. But so wh what did you love about comic books? You mean from from reading them? Yeah. What I'm saying is I enjoyed them as a kid and Mad Magazine was like mm -hmm. my favorite, right? Yeah. But um but I I loved reading comics and I even used comics in teaching. I used mm -hmm. Mouse, for example, M A U S, Art Spiegelman, because it was a way of thinking about the Holocaust that I'd never thought of it before. I mean, I I knew a lot about the Holocaust, but Mouse was an entirely different um entry point into the Holocaust. So I loved comics, but I never thought about um, making one or how what went into making one until I met you and until we went down this rabbit hole into this project. But um, so, so I was looking for an artist, and I remembered that my brother had you as a student, my brother Rick at Berkeley High School, and he said, you should contact Ryan. He's in Portland. He goes to art school up there. And so I wrote you, and that's how it began. You came out. I mean, I didn't trust myself, so I had my three kids look at your work at Oh Yes, Very Nice. I think that was even your website then. <laughs> I think and it was, the, yeah. Yeah, and they loved your work. So you came out to Chicago and spent a long weekend with me, and you and I wrote a book proposal together. I began to learn about comics then, and I learned about it from you. But over the next several months, I had a crash course in comic book art and what it can do but so yeah then we met you came out for a weekend yeah so i guess i mean that's part of what's interesting about well so for me like i had been doing um comics for the newspaper up to that point um i was always just interested in comics this is like the big conversation right comics as a medium meaning uh you know basically what do how do comics work or what can comics do specifically as a medium like why, if it was a standard book, then why is it a comic book now? Like, what are you getting out of that? Or how does this medium function differently than if it's animated or if it's uh, a play? You know, these are all just different ways of telling stories and communicating ideas. And for whatever reason, I almost feel like it chose me, but uh, I've kind of always gravitated towards nonfiction and the work I've done. 
And our book is kind of a, a mishmash because it's fictional in the sense of the specificity. It's about Bill, the school teacher, so that's true in a sense, but then uh, it's kind of uh, taking that template and uh, making stuff up within it. Like the kids in that class are more or less fictional. So that was a lot of where I was coming from, was kind of gathering information, like doing interviews and things like that and turning into a comic book. Um, but it's just interesting to me. I mean, that was a question I really pushed on you at the beginning that you were really willing to engage with me on, which was very helpful for the process of like, uh, how, how does this work as a comic book? And it was tricky with your book with to teach because it wasn't really a narrative at all. It was a bunch of ideas. Yeah, I mean, I think that one of the things, there are a couple things that come to my mind about that moment. Um, first, you're saying it's a medium, not a genre. This is a struggle you and I had from the beginning. And actually, the little forward to our book is you and I riffing on that question. So I would say to you things like, oh, I love this genre. You can do so many things, bow, pow, wham, you know, all the kind of comic book cliches. Mm -hmm. And you would say, it's not a genre, it's a medium. And this actually became a theme that went on and on as we worked together, and then later as we went on book tour, because people constantly, and I know for comic book artists, this is a point of real you know, um, contradiction and anger. I mean, it's not a genre. <laughs> you, you would say to me, no, a Western is a genre or a detective, you know, you know, yeah. story is a genre. This is a medium. It's comics. It's not film. It's not, you know, a novel. It's a medium and the medium is comics. Yeah, a little bit of that is like pedantics around language too like i think there's i mean i think part of what we did in that introduction was made fun of ourselves a little bit about it of too because it's like of course if you're not sitting in your room for 10 hours every day working on this stuff like why would you care enough to know exactly except it does it is serious and it's serious in this sense i remember when we went to the carnegie foundation uh, we were on book tour. We went to the Carnegie, Carnegie Foundation at, at Palo Alto, and they bought a couple hundred of the books to give to every one of their s staff people. So this is, you know, the third edition of a book I wrote called To Teach, but it's an entirely new book. It's now To Teach the Journey in Comics. And the Carnegie Foundation loved the book, bought a bunch of copies for their, for their professional staff. And when we went there and did a presentation, it was a very thoughtful presentation led by you in which you showed, for example, how editing is done in a comic book and how an editor can make a difference in terms of reworking a whole section. It was a brilliant presentation. And afterwards, the vice president of the Carnegie Foundation said, oh, I love this genre. I love this book. It's such a great genre. And this will get the ADHD generation right. to read the real book. And you went nuts. And um, <laughs> steam came out of your nuts. ears. I yes, mean, you did. I, yes, I didn't you throw did. a chair or something. No, you know, like, it yeah. wasn't that kind of nuts. But you pointed out that nobody sees the godfather of the movie in order to get to the real thing which is uh, the novel the godfather you know it's it's a different art form entirely well and sort of the moment i'm in right now like i had a really cool phone meeting with a doctor maybe a month ago i'm pretty booked up right now but i'm really hoping to do some work with her 
later but what she talked about you know i'm i'm involved now in work that's called it's funny because i just do this work and then i'll kind of learn sometimes that there's community around it or like a larger picture so graphic medicine is uh something i'm moving more towards which is essentially just taking you know data or anything about health or wellness or the body um covid is a big you know graphic medicine topic at this time as you might be surprised to learn uh but it's just presenting it in something that i mean a lot of what it is is like uh you know like your book to teach was uh very boring and i couldn't get through it uh it's very dry and hard to read so then we take it and we make it a comic book and you take that same information and you translate it into another medium um obviously i'm joking when i say it's very boring but it's just supposed to appeal to a different kind of reader i guess so this doctor said you know i, I have this data or these studies and my plan is to you know i guess there's these medical journals that nobody reads everybody wants to get published in them but nobody reads uh so also make it a podcast and make it uh, a graphic medicine thing if you have access to motion graphics make you know that essentially we're in an era of uh you know if you can write a really compelling instagram post you'll you know if you can find a good image and then adjoining text um we're given so there's not like six channels on tv anymore and that's what you get it's like you can really cater to your own uh, methods of receiving information. Mm. And so comics is one of them. And I'm probably among the people that that's what appeals to me. So that's kind of how my brain operates. And it can be how I want to receive information too. But So it's just an alternative means. Yeah, but I think, I think it can do... It can do. One of the things I was so impressed at about when we began working together was Teachers College Press was interested in doing this as a 16 page floppy, you know, that they would do a comic book in a kind of a floppy format. And you well, said. Kind of like 40 page. I mean, it was a little longer than 16. Well, but yeah. Whatever it was. But, but what was interesting to me is you fought back and you said to the publisher, you know, if we're going to do it, it has to be a real book. It has to be serious. It has to contain all the thinking and ideas mm -hmm. and experiences that are embodied in the first book, just in a different format, a different aesthetic, a different presentation. But it's not less than and it's not simpler than. It's as complex. And that impressed me from the beginning. But as the book went along, I remember, for example, I remember a page in which there's, I think, no words. The end of one, the chapter about creating environments for learning. Mm -hmm. I think there are no words or just a few words on that page. But it's one panel and it shows an environment for learning. And you could spend an hour in that page or two hours and you could still be getting more information from the page if you took it seriously. And that's what I think is really exciting about comic book art. Yeah, it's sort of like how can you uh, communicate a lot with an image or when you – okay, so like later I did um, Holler If You Hear Me for Teachers College Press with Greg Mitchie. Uh, and a bunch of artists, mostly Chicago artists. And that was a very easy book to adapt because it was uh, stories. You know, it was real people in moving through time and having events occur. So there's some voiceover and outside of that is actually pretty straightforward. Um, but your book was all these concepts. Uh, and so it was funny. I mean, I kind of bluffed. I had experience, but I kind of bluffed my way through the process in a lot of ways, too. As you do and as I still do. But that process of going like, how, there's not a clear path 
forward to adapting these kind of conceptual uh, essays into a comic book, that process we went through was really, really formative for me. And what we did was I asked you to create basically like a list of priorities for each. What are the central concepts? Like, cause, so that was my thing with Teacher College Press is I'm not creating a supplement to the real book. This is a different version of the same book. It's like if a book is a movie, you want it to stand on its own. Um, and so that's what it was about to me is we're essentially going to take it apart and put it back together. It's going to look different, but we need to retain the learning that comes from reading this book. So uh, what are the central concepts? And so you created kind of an outline for each chapter. And then you also said something that I remember forever, which was, you know, I always tell my students now about like the elevator pitch, you know, like what is this really about? Or what do you want us to know? That's always what I ask. Like, if if you can figure out what you want us to know, you can repackage it any way you want, but you, it'll be the same thing. You're retaining that. And you said, I, maybe I'm not supposed to say this, that you said this, but uh, that essentially everyone's just got one kind of thing. Like, you're like, if you look at all my books, it's just the same thing repackaged. It's one idea. It's one idea. Regenerating. Yeah. That's incredible to me. And so I've thought about that so much. Um, and that's a lot of, I mean, my work is, uh, my like whole body of work is essentially just about me learning about stuff and recreating it through comics with the hope that it'll reach people or connect with people. Um, so it's almost like you're watching my process of learning and it's often collaborative. Mm -hmm. You know, this podcast is called The Seminar on Freedom. And um, one of the things that, you and I talked about a bit uh, as we went along, and I think this is true of every art form. Every art form goes through iterations, and people are struggling to free the art form from the clutches of you know of the of the form, and 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 free it, build it into something else. And this happens in novels, in poetry, in music. And so, talk a minute about when we were making this book to teach the journey in comics. We talked about what we were free to do, and we talked about a little bit in that forward, that preface. Um, what what do comics free up for you in terms of some of these ideas? Mm. Can you narrow that down a little bit? Well, I remember us talking about the fact that, you know, you could, I mean, if you think about the forward with, that we did to the book, you have the character of Bill standing on a chair on one leg and juggling and, oh, yeah. you know, that kind of thing. And in many ways, you can get you can get so many ideas packed into a frame or a set of frames or a page precisely because you've just broken down the idea that you need a linear script that mm. makes an argument. And there, yeah. there's, there's a concept of freedom that I think you have always played with. Um, what is What am I free to do in this medium that I'm not free to do in another medium. Yeah, well, I think comics are really, really excellent at subjective perspective. And I always use Calvin and Hobbes as an example, that it's so easy to transition to this little boy's worldview. And sometimes it's even messy, like it's not even clear when it's happening or, you know, like the central question, not a real question, but, you know, is Hobbes imaginary or he sees him one way and everyone... Um, and since it's all illustrated too, like that I'm working in nonfiction, like if I interview someone and recreate it, 
visually it's it's inherently my interpretation because it looks like I drew it because I drew it so it's still um if you were to make a documentary and film someone, you know, you'd still be making creative choices where do you put the camera or where do you cut the footage or what are the edits, but it's more hidden that it's interpretive, you know, where comics I think are really, you can't get outside of how interpretive it is. And then comics are good at uh, jumping around in time, I think, like transitioning. Uh, time just works a really specific way in comics. Um, the design of the page is a whole thing. Like we have a sequence where Bill's in the classroom and then he steps out of the panel and then he go we kind of switch back and forth between these classroom scenarios and then we step out of that and sometimes we meet a different teacher in a different context or Bill gives a speech to us. There's also a lot of pieces in that book that I was really proud of like that each kid we made like eight kids or something which I think has been a common criticism we've got for that book is it's not realistic it's such a small classroom and sometimes people will go well you know it's a comic book you can put as many kids as you want in there and you're like well we're still on a timeline with the budget so drawing more kids actually does take more time you know but anyway we had a small classroom it was a little idealized but each of those kids has a story and you don't necessarily zoom in on it but if you were like let's say you spent you know 12 hours drawing every single page of that book as I did, if you kind of studied those kids, you would notice a lot of stuff that's in there. Like there's the kid Ashley, uh, and she's got like a baby all the time. And when they're holding the turtle, she's holding the turtle like a baby. And then you you meet all the parents at the end of the book. And Ashley's got a pregnant mom. And there's just this little story of what's happening at home, you know. And one of the kids has gay dads and... Uh, there's just like a little bit of a, 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 a backstory. There's just a little more to each kid that's designed visually that's never discussed, but it's just, there's kind of visual clues to that. So I like that about comics a lot too, just that you can allude to things or I do a lot of foreground background, like these characters are talking in the foreground and then there's events happening in the background. Uh, and just that when you, I've learned a lot about, um, using text really minimally like word count is a big priority in comics you know don't don't have too many words because people don't want to read too many words uh but that practice of how do we say this as succinctly as possible and then also how does the character's expression or the way that they move between panels or the space they're in or the composition on the page how do those things communicate these ideas uh it's just fascinating forever to me yeah, I, you know, to, when you say that, I immediately think that comic books and poetry go together mm. very well because the whole point of poetry is concision. Mm. And in many ways, what you're doing with To Teach, The Journey in Comics, is you're taking a bunch of words. And, and, and you and I used to struggle about this when we were working together, that, you know, you'd say, I, I have six panels, I need to convey this this set of ideas, mm -hmm. give me some words, and I'd give you eight pages of words, and you'd say, no, six panels, you know, and you could do a lot with um, with the visuals that meant that I didn't need words. I didn't have to say, you know, a short girl wearing a dress, because there she was, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, so you could, you, you explained a lot of that to me. Um, and, and there's a certain, the, the thing you're saying about documentary film also is fascinating to me because there are comics that use a lot of words. There are comics that 
you know, kind of go wall-to-wall words to some extent. But I was thinking of the documentaries, films, and I think in recent years, documentary films have tried to signal to the viewer that they are to some degree fictionalized. I mean, they they use all kind of methods to signal that. So um, Michael Moore signals it in his documentaries. It's not, he's not running a camera, you know, just on a scene and letting it go. He's making choices. The Weather Underground um, documentary, they have some fictionalized moments in there. And I said to the filmmakers, why did you do that? That's not true. And they said precisely to break through the the third wall and to show that we made this up, you know? Mm. So even though you're seeing somebody say things, it's not the truth in some kind of, you know, definitive way. Well, you know, we're in an era of, uh, I actually had a question for you about that. Um, Cause we're in an era of just kind of subjective interpretation of anything. You know, I was noticing this, this big book everyone's buying right now is this, this big smear campaign against Dr. Fauci, you know, that, who is it, Robert Kennedy Jr. wrote or something, you know? I was reading mm-hmm. reviews of it, and essentially it's like, it's either a groundbreaking, insightful work, or it's a it's a big propaganda piece, you know, depending on who you are. Um, and you're, so, I, we're yeah, we're in this era of everything is subjective to the point that it's, I think, really damaging. And that's what I, I mean, I ask you these questions sometimes, and, you're very humble. I sometimes will call you like when a, a, a an idiot is elected president and say, "What do we do?" And you've never outlined instructions to me. You know, you're always like, "I don't know," but I still like to ask you these questions. So I'm kind of obsessed with in this moment. Like, you've talked to me about democracy a lot. You know, I think you're a believer in democracy, the sort of collective will of uh, the people. But how does a democracy function anymore when there's such rampant misinformation. I mean, like there's my wife is a nurse, you know, and we're obsessed with COVID and COVID safety and how you stay safe. And then there's these people, uh, you, you know, I, I read people's social media, which is just a terrible thing to do, but to sometimes get an understanding of what people are thinking, that's totally crazy. Um, and there's like a big movement of no masking, no social distance, but I, ivermectin, is the solution and it's a big uh, crock that that's being concealed like how does democracy function when people are are uh privy to whatever information they want and can completely create their own subjective viewpoint well this is in my view this is exactly why we have to fight for the truth even if we know that the truth in with a capital t is elusive And even if we know that it's disappearing before our eyes, and even if we know there's no final answer, the reason we fight for the truth is because there can be no democracy if there's not truth. One of the ways that you destroy democracy is you make everything relative and you create what Stephen Colbert used to jokingly call truthiness. You know, kind of true. And what we have to fight for is the idea that there are facts, that there is a truth, even if we understand that we don't get the whole picture, even if we understand that it's contingent, even if we understand that it's dynamic and in motion, we need to fight for the idea that there is a truth worth fighting for. And I say that saying also, 
I, I would put it this way, maybe. There is an objective world out there. It's just not the same for all. So I've told you that Bernadine and I, whenever we go to a movie, we seem to have seen two different movies, you know, <laughs> uh, that, that we went and saw Avatar, and I came out sobbing because I wanted to live on the blue planet. Uh, or the, and Bernadine came out saying that was an imperialist, racist piece of shit. <laughs> now, which, 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 one, which, which one of us was right? Yeah. Well, in a sense, we were both right. But there was a film called Avatar. It did go by on the screen. It did hit our eyes and brain pan uh, simultaneously. So, but, but what I'm saying is we don't have to give up on the idea of truth in order to understand that the truth is always something that we seek. It's not a destination exactly. It's something we go for. So it's worth asking the next question and the next. But you have to defend what you see through evidence and argument, not mm. through subjective, you know, not through completely, well, I think so. That's not the end of the discussion. It's how I see it. So what? I mean, that's just one thing. So COVID is a great example, but there are many, many examples, including examples from history. Did slavery exist? Yes, it did. Did it destroy millions and millions of lives? Yes, it did. And we have to fight for that as an understanding. So we're at this moment where, you know, everything has become weaponized and everything has become contentious. But that's no reason to either leave the field or to say, well, then the truth, there is no truth. Uh, mm -hmm. Thomas Jefferson was a great guy or a terrible guy. How about both? You mm -hmm. know, I mean, that's the other way to think about it is that... Yeah. Where dialectics actually saves us and contradiction saves us is that the truth lies in the contradictions, not in the in, in the kind of flattening out of reality into a one dimensional space. Um, so so I can look at Thomas Jefferson and admire things, even as I think that he was a monster in terms of owning human beings, raping human beings, you know, all those things are true of Thomas Jefferson. And he wrote some amazing documents about democracy, both. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's often the solutions both are true or, yeah, there's, I mean, that's very true about, you know, ways we're, we're passing judgment on celebrities or influential figures these days. But yeah, I mean, it's tricky though, too. One thing I'm really uncomfortable with too is this idea that I am right, you know, like uh, in, in these debates, you know, like one thing that's really driven me nuts is, uh, you know, again, my wife's a nurse and she's working within the healthcare system. Um, and I won't speak for any individual, but I, I am aware that helping people who won't get vaccinated, who have COVID is a source of stress to the healthcare system in general. And then I see these claims online that like now it's the vaccines are causing the variants and there's no reason to even think that that's a possibility. There's no nothing to back that. And I feel so mad. But I also or like that the election was stolen. There's no evidence whatsoever. Um, well, let's go back in history. A cabal of Jews brought the Germans uh, uh, to grief. I mean, you know, it's not true. And it's mm -hmm. important that we not only know today that it's not true, but that had you lived in Germany in 1935, that you would have fought against that. You have to fight mm -hmm, against it mm -hmm. because we see where it leads. And mm -hmm. so, you know, we, we need to identify the things that are dragging us down into the muck and mud of, of, of backwardness and, and anti-civilization, mm -hmm. even as we 
recognize the complexity of anything. So I, I had lunch today with Erica Miners. I don't know if you remember Erica, but she wrote her most recent book is a brilliant book called um, uh, The Feminist and the Sex Offender. And she begins with uh, the trial of Larry Nasser, the Michigan State coach, right, mm-hmm. who, uh, who abused all those gymnasts. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So she says, she begins the book by describing the sentencing of Larry Nasser. And the judge, a woman judge, Erica says, did two remarkable things. The first thing is, she said, before I sentence you, we're going to open the courtroom and take as long as it takes for any woman who wants to come forward and tell her story, come and tell your story. Mm. That was brilliant. Mm. And then Erica says, the second thing she did was also remarkable and undid the value of the first. She said to Larry Nasser, what you've done is so despicable that I wish we didn't have a ban on cruel and unusual punishment mm. because I would like to sentence to have done to you exactly what you did to these women. Mm-hmm. So here's an invitation to rape and murder from the judicial system, right? And so Erica, all through the book, what she's struggling with is that you have to, on the one hand, allow the victims of sexual abuse and and, and attacks and, and so on. You have to allow them the full range of their emotions. And at the same time, you have to search for humane, understandable, loving, caring um, solutions that don't you know, that don't increase the level of pain and cruelty in the society. Hmm. Complicated. But there is truth there. I mean, there's truth that you're seeking, and the truth is both repairing harm, and the truth is also creating a society of love and joy and compassion, not one of cruelty and mean-spiritedness and and punitiveness. And that's, that's impossibly difficult, but it's right within that contradiction that the truth lies. Yeah, I mean, the subjectivity, again, I think gets really uh, messy. Like, again, I don't know why I'm bringing... I mean, I guess when I say I see things on Twitter or whatever, it's it's like my form of investigation of what wackadoos are thinking, you know. But I so often now see this uh, push for vaccines compared to the Holocaust. Yeah, <laughs> And I'm crazy. like, it's deeply inappropriate. And I'm also like, can someone tell these people, like, the, the Nazis were not trying to protect the Jews from... Uh, a virus like that's a really important uh detail there you know um so i don't know that's it's there's just such a heavy indoctrination in this contradictory thinking well there's no question about it but look what i'm saying partly is those of us who are educators and those of us who believe in freedom and democracy we have to be willing to walk through fields of ambiguity and contradiction and we have to be willing to ask the next question and the next so when i see the right wing for example um rise up uh, i think it was senator cruz who quoted george orwell uh, you know, I, I mean, George Orwell literally said every word I've written since the Spanish Civil War is written against totalitarianism and for democratic socialism. And yet somehow to cherry pick something out of 1984 and to pretend that if 
if Josh, you know, Holly loses a book contract, it's it's just like 1984 and the clubs and the sticks and the torture. No, it's not, you know. And yeah. so we don't we can't allow that kind of stupidity and that kind of cherry picking to be the last word. And that's why, in my mind, good teachers, good educators, good writers are always asking the next question. They're never settled as if everything is now solved because I said it perfectly. That's not true. There's always more. But don't give up on the idea that the truth is something that's so elusive that we can't pursue it. You have to pursue the truth. And you have to pursue it in a way that, that your arguments are persuasive and your evidence is compelling. Mm-hmm. So that's, you know, I want to flash forward a minute, if we could. Um, you said you were getting into comics medicine. Is that how you put it? Graphic medicine. Graphic medicine. Mm-hmm. I love that. And I know that you did some work on reproductive freedom and reproductive rights. And you yeah. did some stuff in the New York Times. Maybe you could talk about that and bring us forward to what you're doing in medicine right now. Sure. Well, I think we, we solved the problems of our democracy. So that's good. So we can just move forward now and talk about comic books again. Um, so and thanks for that. Uh, yeah, well, like I said, again, I have a, a habit of stumbling into things, I think, of just kind of being interested in making stuff and then learning that there's like a larger, you know, I'm, I'm fitting into something. So I, what was I? I was in my early 30s. I don't know what time things happen anymore. But anyway, I had a couple of friends have miscarriages close together and I had the same exact conversation with both just in being willing to listen like in caring about how they felt they both said uh they didn't know how common it was until they themselves had experienced it and that there wasn't really a space to feel the grief of it because you can't really tell your boss I had a miscarriage I need to take some time off work or you know it's like becomes a conversation you have to have with people because everyone's staring at you to know if you're pregnant and how do we just that there wasn't we're very terrible at addressing these things culturally so uh you know in that moment i just sat with them but kind of my my uh brain starts to go okay this is there should be resources around this you know this is a call to create something uh, that would be contributing something. So I just interviewed four women who'd had miscarriages and I just asked them to tell me about their experience. And I made a comic for the nib is a website, a nonfiction, mostly political comics website. We've done stuff for the nib together. You and I, yes. Yeah. And it, it, it seemed to be uh, one thing I loved that I hadn't thought about is that it, when you publish comics online they become a free resource like anyone can now that comic i think still gets shared like when people if your friend has a miscarriage you can send them this comic they can read it for free that's a really a beautiful thing to me so then jessica zucker is a clinical psychologist in la and she saw it and she started the campaign the hashtag i had a miscarriage um so she herself had a miscarriage and was just doing a lot of work around uh, awareness around that. So she sort of decided to uh, scoop me up and do a bunch of work. So she and I collaborated a lot and had a really fruitful, we continue to have a really fruitful collaboration. Um, and to me, again, I'm just like, this is important. You know, I'm not uh, beholden specifically to miscarriages like uh, the most important you know reproductive health in general is often a very and so that's a question that comes up too is like why am i doing this work you know what's my 
role in this um and i think there's a lot of answers to that one is that like i care which is important and you should want if we're talking specifically about me being a man you know you should want me all men should care about this you know the idea that it's a it's a women's issue and that it happens in a woman's body or you know a pregnant person's body and that's something to respect and to not I'll never um, be in the driver's seat of this thing. You know, I'll never write my own personal essay of my feelings about miscarriage. It's more about me using these tools I have to help communicate that message, to tell someone else's story in a way that hopefully connects. Uh, So, I mean, women have ownership of the subject, if you want to frame it that way, but we should all care about it. Like there's this idea that since it's a quote unquote women's issue, then I, I should just not engage with it or something, which I think is very odd. So, um, you know, I'm just on the team of men, but it's also true. Many, you know, matter. It's very common that people don't think about something until it happens to them, you know, um, which I don't think should always be the case. You know, you shouldn't have to have cancer to care about cancer research or statistics around cancer you shouldn't have to wait until you have diabetes to be aware of diabetes things like that you know um i think that there should always be access to information about these things and art made around or just ways to communicate information and to connect with people that was the big thing the first time i did the miscarriage piece with four different women is that they were very different people different life experiences and different stories but they were connected by this event in their lives and that's something to know how do you check your work uh, back if you're a, a man doing work on reproductive health how do you you said you had four different women you worked with and you had this female clinical psychologist how do you get you know feedback or or how do you hear back about how the work is is hitting yeah i mean it's tricky because when you're drawing pictures of someone you always take a risk you know like uh we did a thing with uh maxine green you know where i i took photos of you of you two talking and then i drew from the photos and she didn't like the drawings <laughs> and i don't know if she thought they were bad drawings she just didn't like the way that she looked well uh, when they made the weather underground film i didn't like the way i looked on on camera it must have been me it looked like me but i didn't think it was very flattering of me so i i, I remember saying did i really say that well i must have said it they quoted me yeah. but damn so stupid and i i looked at my face i said did i have acne that day i look ridiculous yeah. you know but yeah. I think that's a very typical kind of subjective thing i'm more interested in the whole question of you know taking over somebody else's experience or co-opting or yeah i mean i always try i mean i do sort of think of myself as a, i mean okay like i'm a uh, if you you know write down on a piece of paper or whatever i'm a straight white male and you know i'm gonna be 40 damn uh and i feel like i know it's <laughs> who needs it who aging, needs it who, aging out of the youth movement it's really hard and i feel like i have i can watch anything made before two years ago and see myself essentially on screen or in a book or whatever that I don't have any need to have my story told or to be represented by any media um, very much in my own life if you look at the people I'm close to or spend time with you know there's a uh, it's different kinds of people and so um, I 
check in with myself a lot, but I think my priority is really to just, I, I never try to be in front of the work. That's what I always say is get behind the work. So again, that method that we had, like what's the message here? So I did these interviews and I kind of outlined what are the, what are the points being made, you know? And you have, you do have to make a lot of editing decisions because, you know, I made a comic that takes, you know, eight minutes to read out of, you know, four hours worth of interviews. So you have to really boil it down but um and again when you're telling someone else's story the odds that they're gonna make a different decision for themselves than you would make is is, are high you know or that you would draw them in a way that you know oh my you know i got a double chin in that second or whatever um there's always that risk but i guess it's that same thing that you're saying that elusive pursuit of truth you know um, but I, I guess I try to say, how does this serve the audience? You know, that was I went to art school, and that was the big takeaway. I, I went to art school because I couldn't draw a car, you know, and nobody ever told me how to draw a car in art school. But we spent a lot of time going, who is this for, and what does this mean, and what's the essential kind of messaging, and what's your, who's the audience, and what's this moment we're in, and what do you want people to know? So I want people. That's the real tricky part of the work I do is I want people to feel seen. Um, I want people to see themselves in a way they haven't seen before in uh, media, you know. I want to kind of talk about things that we're not talking about enough. Um, and then, you know, is it my place to do that is a big question. But, yeah, well, I th- I'd, I'd like to riff on that a little bit or hear you riff on it. I, You know, when I teach writing a lot and I often come back to something that I take to be very important, which is I tell my students, I don't want you to become a better writer. I want you to become a truer writer. Mm. Tell the truth. Tell the truth and t- and try to tell it more truthfully the next time. And that's more important than kind of polishing your craft with nothing to say. But in terms of what you're saying, I really like you to talk a bit about, on the one hand, you don't want to be in the position of saying, I'm an artist. I can do anything I want with mm-hmm. the women I'm writing about or the African-Americans I'm writing about. But nor do you want to say I'm disqualified from being part of the human experience because I'm a 40 year old, you know, straight white man. I mean, how do you wrestle with that? I think it's worth the moment we're living in asks white people to sit with it for a minute. Mm-hmm. I think that's healthy myself. Mm-hmm. I, I, I think that's healthy. I think men should sit with it for a minute and sit with the Me Too movement for a minute and and not rush to say what they take to be the truth who cares i mean on the one hand on the other hand i think it would it 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 becomes problematic if you say well you're not part of the human experience if you're over there and there's only one way to be authentic because that splitting down authenticity uh leads to a very very narrow end point um you know i can't write about you can't write a Palestinian writer in the United States can't write about torture unless he's been tortured. That's ridiculous. Right. That's right. ridiculous. On the other hand, do I think uh, you know a white writer should worry about whether he or she is representing adequately a Palestinian experience? Yes, I think they should worry about that. 
Yeah, I mean, part of me goes, who does that? Like, who? I mean, I guess it happens all the time. Oh, a lot of people. <laughs> a lot of people. Who writes a whole book and doesn't consider these stances that they're, you know, I, that's amazing to me that that's, I mean, but, and but, I think. But yeah. it shouldn't be amazing. You should go back and, and, and look at some of the stuff that, that's been written in the United States, of, you know, representing black characters. I mean, mm-hmm. Toni Morrison has a wonderful, wonderful essay called Playing in the Dark about black characters in American literature or Edward Said, Orientalism. Great Mm -hmm. kind of understanding of the point of a black person in a Hemingway story. And you don't even remember that there was a black person in that story because it was so much background and so much Mm -hmm. dressing. And, And I think that's our history because we live in a history of white supremacy and imperialism and that's kind of how we construct other people. And we, I mean, look, one place that you and I both see it is you look at a, a film like Bamboozled by S- Spike Lee, or you look at, and you look at how black people were constructed, or you look at a movie, a documentary today, um, uh, Exterminate All the Brutes, and suddenly you see Fred Astaire and Frank Sinatra dancing through the Museum of natural history, mm-hmm. making the most racist comments. Well, I saw that movie as a kid. I thought it was kind of cool. Mm-hmm. I didn't remember that part. I better remember it. Yeah. So, yes, I think it's always been there, you know? Well, so going back to what you said before, I mean, I think part of it for me is I don't approach it from the stance of, I'm an artist and this is my... I, to me, having, having lived this life, I see the artist as a very lowly... <laughs> I don't see myself as a, uh, I mean, I see myself as having a responsibility that if I, I in, I have done enough things in my career that I, I've had a few things go well, and I don't know what that's going to be. Uh, I have no uh, way of predicting what's going to hit, you know? Um, and so I do think there's a responsibility of considering the possibility that this might reach a lot of people and you have to treat each thing like it does, but I also, I guess in in the sense, what I'm saying about the artist being a lowly figure is that, uh, well, again, what I would say is I get behind the subject. I don't get in front of the subject. So am I working in service of this subject? So for example, when I did the first miscarriage piece, uh, I, I didn't say one word in that piece there's no voiceover there's if i were to draw myself and go hey here's cartoon me i'm here to talk about miscarriage i learned about this um that would be disgusting (laughs) to me Mm -hmm. um and so uh i i i sat with these people and asked some questions and but i don't know anything they know everything so my job is to take what they shared with me and kind of repackage it and reinterpret it. And there's a big responsibility there. There's a lot to consider, which is sort of what we're talking about. But that's my stance. Essentially, I'm a student of these teachers who are sharing their knowledge with me. And then I have a big responsibility to carefully uh, share what they shared with me. And I think part of it is having that experience. If I give myself credit for something that I can sit and listen and I care about what people have to say, not what everyone has to say, but in in these contexts that I choose. Um, so, uh, 
Yeah, I think to me, if there's something I'm doing well in my work, if I can say for myself, I think that's it is just being curious and being open, not really having uh, things for myself. I don't have a thing to prove. I have a thing to prove like, hey, I can write and draw and this looks good and this reads well. But in terms of the subject, it's it's always about learning. What did I what did I learn by being a student of the subject? That's really what all the work is. It's interesting because there's a parallel with the way you and I talked about teaching uh, all those years ago, because I've argued in, throughout my entire uh, life as a teacher is that the main job of a teacher is to be a student of the students. Mm -hmm. The main job isn't to convey information. Anyone can do that. A book can do it. A, uh, a program can do it. But to become a student of this three-dimensional creature, to understand that person in all their dimensionality, and to recognize that whatever you see and know and understand, and no matter how deep you go, you're still scratching the surface. There's always more to know. And in a way, that's how I see your work on, on this, uh, this health stuff that you, and I think you're very explicit about it. I think you, this was true, incidentally, when you were doing the column in the alternative newspaper in Portland, you would draw a portrait and then you would take the words of that person, whether that person was a meter maid or a homeless person or a baker on the street, you would take those words and that would be what would, you would foreground. But you're still doing that in a way. You're still observing the world portraying the world and letting the person speak in his or her own voice. Yeah, I always called it the filter, you know, this is I'm the filter. Like I I I listened and I used my I watched and I listened and this and then I recreated it. So that's true. I mean, I'm pre that's the same thing too that subjectivity. You're present in the work if you drew it. Like there's no avoiding that. It looks like I drew it. So I'm I'm presenting to the audience that this is my interpretation right. there's no right. getting outside of that but i am really thinking about you know what's my responsibility or uh you know if someone changes your mind or teaches you something you didn't know it's that's a beautiful thing sure. you know sure. so there were in any subject i've ever uh again it's just that it's just you're what i'm what i'm not what i'm not sharing is like hey i'm an imperialist uh, I'm trying to dominate this subject. What I'm sharing is, I mean, I hope not. What I'm sharing is I was curious about this. I was interested and I was willing to learn. And here's what I learned in my study of this subject. With all this in mind, let's talk about Muhammad Ali. Uh -huh. A very ambitious project that you undertook and you're kind of in the middle of it. But with all this in mind of representation, being a student of the subject, where you are, where you started, and where you are now. Talk a bit about the Muhammad Ali project. Yeah, so I've been working on a comic book biography about Muhammad Ali uh, for a long time now. <laughs> I mean, I had the idea initially after we finished to teach, which is in 2008, and I always had this idea of like I needed to, I needed to keep training before I could uh, get into the big event. But I always, I don't know why, I had this real clarity that that was the book I wanted to make. So I had, I was just going like, okay, I, I know how to um, draw portraits, draw likenesses, and I'm interested in nonfiction, and I have, I can study a subject and kind of recreate it. So I really wanted to make a great comics biography. I was really like, that's what I think I can really contribute to this medium. And comics biography has been happening more and more. And there are ways that they're done traditionally that I don't think work 
as well as they could. One is that they're very caption heavy. A lot of times mm-hmm. they're visual montages. And I think that is successful in getting the information out. But I myself don't necessarily want to read that. Um, so when you see something like a biopic, you know, uh, there's things that work. It's engaging, but then it's got to be between 90 minutes and two and a half hours. And you have a famous actor trying to win an award at the front of this thing. You have a director's aesthetic. Uh, and a lot of sensationalism. And then as those biopics were kind of coming out every year, there was they were kind of the same thing over and over again. Like everyone's haunted by a visual metaphor throughout their life and it gets resolved at the end. I saw the Ray Charles one, you know, and I always was so bugged by that. that uh, and then Ray Charles finished, he, he overcomes his drug addiction and then 40 years later he died. And you're like, what? So yeah, this is right. just a movie about, it's an incredible performance by Jamie Foxx, but it's really just the story of his drug addiction, essentially, which is not what I am most interested about, about what Ray Charles did. But anyway, um, so Muhammad Ali appealed to me for a couple of reasons. I just kind of considered who would it be. And I thought of a few people, but Muhammad Ali was like by far the clear choice. And it was that, well, to me, the essential thing is that he didn't fight in the Vietnam War. And that he was someone who really understood fame on the, in this very high-level thinking sort of a way and was very responsible with it. And he starts as a sports figure, which honestly, to me, doesn't really mean anything. Like, I don't know much about sports or have a strong relationship with sports. But he became this political figure. And the way he sort of lived in both those worlds and the way that he understood what he meant and 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 was responsible about it is incredible to me. And then the other piece that just made it accessible to comics is that what he did is visually interesting. You know, like if I said, oh, I'm so interested in the Beatles, you know, John Lennon was important. But when he plays a song, that doesn't translate well to comics at all. Um, or Oliver Sacks was someone I was really interested in and thought about. Um, but what's the story of Oliver Sacks' life, really? Or, you know, what does he do that... I mean, I guess when you get into neurology, you can get into some pretty interesting visuals. But anyway, recreating those boxing matches is is perfect for comics. It's like... And that was another thing, too, is I was always interested in uh, different genres to explore within comics and boxing. I was like, oh, there should be more comics about boxers because it's so... It works so well. And Muhammad Ali was so good at developing the narrative around the fights, you know, that it always meant more than winning a fight, you know? There was always like a, a ideological victory that came with him winning. Uh, so there's that too. So anyway, I just got interested in the subject. I wanted to make like a 150 page book, you know, and get it done. And then uh, I, I studied up on him a little bit and I just, it's a very big story, but I also just totally fell in love with the story of Muhammad Ali. So the first book I read was David Remnick's book, King of the World, which is kind of early Cassius Clay era. Uh, which is a, a big resource for as I go through the early stuff. And then uh, Bill Siegel's documentary, The Trials of Muhammad Ali. You kept telling me about that. Mm-hmm. Uh, you knew Bill Siegel, and I got to know him a little bit later. And Bill Siegel's the one who made the Weather Underground movie. That's right. Filmmaker, yeah. And so you knew he was working on this documentary, which was all about the politics. And I saw that in the theater when it came out. That was like 2013 or something. Right. And that was it for me. I was like, this guy is, is he's huge part of our American history and it says so much about um, just the way the system works you know and what it meant that someone could be such a large figure that he would push back and it actually would kind of 
work out for him is such a valuable and that he just his story i think just blows the lid off of a lot of really huge systemic problems you know uh so that's where so again i just became a student of that subject and there's a lot of stuff about muhammad ali so i spent a couple of years just doing research just reading books literally every day i have a whole shelf in my house that's just all muhammad ali stuff um and part of it's that too we talk about the truth you know and you get through these things there's a lot of oral histories you know and uh there are uh, contradictory versions of events there's different takes on events there's famous stories that may or may not be true so a lot of it was just kind of working through that stuff. But again, it was developing an outline, going, what's the story? How does this work? Uh, and what are the essential points? You know, what do I want the audience to know at each stage? So I built an outline, and then I wrote a really long book. How long? It's about 400 pages, which is okay, awful. And, and where are you in terms of inking and finishing? I've got, I think I have chapter one. I think you're putting it out. A chapter at a time, aren't you? I am. So I wrote the whole thing kind of a long time ago now. It's been two or three years. Um, a lot's happened in the last few years. I have a baby now, which is, I talk about that forever, uh, but it's, I used to be, I have a much easier time uh, keeping to a schedule. I'll tell you that right now. But, um, so I wrote the whole thing and I worked with an editor to kind of go through it. And then it's so big and it's so kind of precarious, like what's going to happen with this, pro how viable is this project is a big question, you know? Um, and so for now, the first five chapters, he's Cassius Clay. That's that era of his life before his name has changed. Uh, and so that's kind of working as a volume one. I'll have a first book done uh, that'll come out probably early 2022, or I don't know what production turnaround will look like, but it'll be done, no, 2023. Um, so throughout 2022, I'm going to work. I have a Patreon account. It's patreon.com slash. Oh, yes. Very nice. If you want to subscribe to this project. Uh, and I am a big subscriber and I get as the chapters are finished, you send me uh, a, a hard a physical book, which I absolutely love. Yeah, everyone who has subscribed absolutely loves it. Um, but but the the other thing I want to point about the the first book that I got, the first chapter really, is that at the end you have end notes that are mm -hmm. extremely extensive, and I think that that's really speaks to this question of becoming a student of your subject. They're they're really. And, and in the end notes, you not only cite references, but you say what the controversy is on this point and mm -hmm. why you chose to do it this way. I find that really refreshing. Oh, thank you. Yeah. So just to finish before, so the first five cha chapters are going to be one volume. It's going to be a book. And hopefully that does well enough that I can do the second volume and then it'll all be one big book at the end. But right now I'm doing the Cassius Clay year. So uh, the second chapter I'm finishing drawing in the next couple weeks and then you'll get that in the mail you can subscribe either digitally or print i would get print personally if i was i just like print but i actually make more money if you subscribe digitally which is cheaper so because and how do you subscribe again you go to patreon.com slash oh yes very nice pay p-a-t-r-e-o-n patreon.com dot com yeah slash o-h-y-e-s-v-e-r-y-n-i-c-e -E -E. so anyway yeah the end notes i think were it's funny because that's i have trouble going figuring out if i'm how much people want to know the behind the, i'm obsessed like i could talk with you for hours about 
Muhammad Ali and the choices I made, you know? But it seems, I mean, again, it, it's inherently subjective. I drew it, but there's this question of how real is this? You know, how true is this? And it's as true as it could possibly be and based on all the research I've done. Again, there's contra- like in the second chapter, there's the, a very famous moment where he throws his gold medal into the Ohio River. He goes and wins an Olympic gold medal. He comes home. They won't serve him in a restaurant. Famously, he throws the medal in the river. And then, if you really research this story, that didn't happen. It happened in the movie where he played himself, and it happens in some dramatizations, but Muhammad Ali himself said that didn't actually happen. So uh, you got to weigh that out. So what I do, I, this is a little sneak preview, but I have him standing next to the Ohio River holding the medal and then the scene ends so if it's important to you that he throws it in you can imagine he does it afterwards but i don't my my deduction is that that didn't actually happen so there's a lot of stuff like that and um well let me weigh weigh in on the question of endnotes and how extensive should they be the great thing about endnotes is you don't have to read them if you're (laughs) not interested don't read them but Mm -hmm. but the fact that they're there and I looked into some of them and just thought they were absolutely fascinating. And, you know, it br- brought to mind a comic book. I think you and I have talked about this book, The Great Hanoi Rat Hunt. No, Do you I remember don't know that, that book. No. Oh, my God, you must see it. It's, it's a, a graphic of a dissertation about Hanoi, Vietnam, during the French occupation. And the story is relatively simple, which is that the French colonialists want to get rid of the rats because they bring plague, because they want Hanoi to be a world city where they can have a world's fair and show that French colonialism is as good as British and Spanish and all the rest. So they're trying to get rid of the rats. And so one of the things they do is they offer up a cash reward. Bring us a rat and we'll give you a franc. Uh And, and, And this actually happened. Yeah. And of course, the unintended consequence was that some French officer was in the neighborhoods and noticed that there were rat farms. Yeah. And and that people were breeding rats because what the hell, you could get a franc for a rat. So, you know, but it's it has a, not ex, just extensive endnotes. It has a whole dissertation. The comic book is all that I read because that's all mm-hmm. I was interested in. But then you could read another 300 pages of scholarly work. But that's what I thought was great when I got your book is that I thought that the fact that the endnotes were as extensive as they were and as well organized as they were meant that a scholar could go in there and go deep. Um, but if you wanted to read the comic book... You could read the comic book. Yeah, I mean, one thing I really was inspired by was Alan Moore and Eddie Campbell did a book from Hell. That's uh, it's essentially like a theory about who Jack the Ripper was, and it's not even really intended to be a true story. It's just taking a lot of research, and it's it's sort of what if this theory were accurate. Um, but there's a bunch, and it tells you where all this stuff, and it, it sometimes even incorporates anecdotes like oh you know this happened to me actually and i put this in there but so for the muhammad ali thing particularly the first chapter is tricky because that's the part that happens before he's famous he's a kid in the first chapter so i have um many biographies i've read where it says you know these are things his dad would talk to him about when he was growing up so the subjects are outlined you know um that Emmett Till was killed when Cassius Clay was a kid. He was deeply affected by that. So that's a fact that he was affected by that. The timeline lines up. Uh, Muhammad Ali himself spoke about this. It's very well documented that that was influential to him. But what did that look like, that moment of him learning about it? 
Uh, he talks about it as autobiography, so you can use that as a basis. But you create a scene, you know. Um, a lot of it's that, is putting in a scene. As you get further along, one of the things that made Muhammad Ali a good subject uh, to research is, like, he has a really messy breakup with his second wife, you know. She confronts him over this infidelity, and uh, they have in their hotel room this confrontation. And there were people sitting there. Because he liked being famous so much, he had people around all the time. So even these really private moments, like there's an oral history where, you know, so-and-so the reporter was sitting there and he'll tell you what he saw. Um, but early on, there's not that. He's a kid. He's not famous yet. So I had to kind of dramatize things more. So I used as much uh, direct quotations as possible. Um, and I do a lot of, like, plugging language from interviews into dialogue, which work pretty well I thought uh, organically but in this first chapter it's a lot of like dramatizing things I know are true so I just wanted to clarify that one of these goals of this book for me is that like a kid in middle school could read this book and it really functions well as a bio you don't have to read another book to learn about Muhammad Ali there's when you research Muhammad Ali there's a lot of like really good books and documentaries that zero in on a certain era you know because he's such a big subject and things go up and down and he's active through these different eras so I wanted to create one of the very few resources that gets the whole subject done in one book um, but in that it's an illustrated kind of recreation and includes dramatizations I wanted to be really explicit I didn't want anyone to quote I didn't want there to become like a Muhammad Ali quote that was out there that was something that I wrote. So I mm. wanted you to look in the back of the book and go, okay, these are real quotes from interviews. Mm -hmm. This is exactly how this happened. This is a, a an interpretation. So it'll be more heavily cited when it's collected where it really, you know, cites exactly where things came from. But I thought, I felt a responsibility right away to really uh, pull back the curtain and say, okay, this is how this was made, you know? I think that's great. And I think that, again, is part of the tradition of documentary films these days and of other things. But but I want to go back. I, I want to ask you one more question about the Ali Project, which is I want to go back to what we were talking about, about um, representation mm -hmm. and standpoint. And how do you feel or how do you think about the fact that you're a white guy mm. taking this uh, black icon and representing him in a comic book. How do you think about that? What have you wrestled with in that regard? Well, I know we're running long, and now you're asking me a very big question. Um, yeah, this will take you another hour. That's okay. So so I hope you are have a comfortable chair you're sitting in. <laughs> um, I mean, I think a lot about it. Compl it's complicated and it's messy, I think, ultimately. Um, I think... You know, I had a, a tough moment. I made a video at the start of this uh, of the Patreon for this project, and I talked a little bit about my kind of place in my personal history. And I know a guy, a white guy, who's a millionaire. Actually, he used to be my boss, and he said, "You know, don't just lead with some of my friends are black." You know, don't say that. It's distasteful. And I said, that's not what I said. That's what you interpreted. I've had so much in the last. I mean, I started working on this project five or six years ago. And the landscape has changed a lot in that time. Um, and some of that's been good. And some of it, um, I do think this, ah, it's messy. Okay, so I think I have a responsibility. I think I'm from Oakland. Uh, I think when you check your boxes of, 
you know, you could say I'm a 40-year-old white male, you know, so what do I know about anything? And then I can also say I was parented by a few black women. Uh, both my parents were in relationships with black women for a number of years when I was growing up. I always lived in black neighborhoods. Um, I guess it's, can you see the humanity in these people? So there's, I, I watched an interview uh, Richard Pryor did with Dick Cavett that it was very, had a really good uh, sound bite in it to me. Because Dick Cavett's going, can white people write about black people? This is like in the early 70s, you know? And Richard Pryor said, if you write for the person, then yes. And if you're trying to write a black person, uh, then you're probably gonna mess it up, you know? Um, so I think a lot of it is that this is all a true story. It's all researched. I think my work is always about empathy. So can I empathize with this? Can I relate to the story? Uh, and I think, yeah. And if I felt like I couldn't, then I, or if I was gonna go, okay, I'm gonna do a story about uh, Ravi Shankar, I would say there'd be so many aspects to even, what does his house look like? Or what is what are his customs and traditions? What food does he eat? That would be so research heavy that it would be really challenging to say the least. But, um, and I don't know the South. I mean, I went to Louisville. I spent a week there as research and I went to Louisville, you know, five years ago, which is very different than 1954 Louisville. But like uh, the first chapter takes place in the West End in 1954. So I went to the library and found photo archives of what does it look like there. I read a bunch of essays about the history of redlining in that neighborhood. Um, so I think it's a big job, it's a big responsibility. I think this idea, I think if you are willing to subscribe to the idea inherently that white people can't represent people of color in their art, uh, then I, I don't know what to do. Like, I, I got nothing for you. But I think if you're saying that I have a big responsibility and I have to be open to feedback, I have to really, challenge myself to do this well and consider the moment we're in, uh, then that's been an ongoing part of the project. Let me go back to the question of contradiction, because one of the things I, I would add is that, um, you know, the answer to the contradiction of being a white person writing about a black icon is not to say, as your friend said to you, well, I'm a good white person or I'm an experienced white person, mm -hmm. nor is it to say, well, then it's impossible, but rather to stay open to the contradiction of being a white person writing about a black icon. So if you're living in that contradiction, you're more likely to kind of land on the truth here and there than if you pretend there is no contradiction because there is a contradiction. So sitting with the contradiction is not a bad thing. And the second thing is, which is why I like your endnote so much, you're very clear about who you are and your standpoint and your work. And therefore, you're not saying this is the definitive last word. There will never be another Muhammad Ali like the mm -hmm. one I made. Hell no. There will be another mm -hmm. one. And that was my lesson when I first read Mouse by Art Spiegelman. But I, th I was a student of the Holocaust. I thought I knew everything. I didn't know everything because Spiegelman added a dimension that I'd never thought of. And there will be more that because because we live in a dynamic, forward-charging universe that's expanding, and there is no last word. And as long as you can be humble about that, and as long as you can feel the pain of living within a contradiction, hey, you're doing good work. And I absolutely love your work, so... Well, thank you. Keep at it. 
Well, like, so part of what Mouse is, is it's this legacy of the Holocaust. You know, it's a survivor and his son kind of relating. And that part of that tells you how the Holocaust exists through generations. So I can't make that. But, you know, if uh, 500 people had written books about Art Spiegelman's father and interviewed him extensively, you know, then it sort of changed. And that's part of the story of Muhammad Ali is he liked being famous. He's been he's pre-social media, pre-reality TV. I think he's probably the most documented person that walked the earth. I think that's true. Mm -hmm. Um, I think we're in a moment of talking a lot about equity, which I think is really important, you know, Um, but it's again, messy. I've had a lot of uh, white people tell me that uh, like one thing that comes up a lot is um, you should get a person of color to draw this book. So I, I see that principle, but also you're essentially telling me in my role. And what one is, I, I know it, that's the thing that I do is I draw comic books and then I'm not making any money. So it's like you're now, is that progress that I offer a, a really laborious job that doesn't pay any money? To, it's That's a weird piece. So I think one thing is like, I mean, I think it's good if we have more actors on television or people of color and stuff, but who's running the production companies? Rather than like, who's making money off these books? We need more... I think there's a piece of it where I think we we missed the bigger picture in some of this. And a lot of it's what does things look like, you know? Um, there was a lot of uh, people going on social media and going, oh, here's a black author. I'm white and here's a black author I like. So that's my, I'm cool now, you know? Um, which is really uh, kind of violating in a sense to do that to someone, you know? Um, so I think... It should be more like, yeah, who who is in the leadership roles around this stuff? Not necessarily saying a white person can't research a subject to make a thing, but that the people running the operate, let's get rid of some of these editors and publishers. And, you know, if you really want to restructure this thing, it's it should be happening on the ground, but it should be happening higher up, too. I think that is true. But I also think it's true. There's this weird, you know, push for diversity in media, which I think is good and creating more work and opportunity for people of color is great too and telling your own personal narrative you know or something that's close to you i think is really important and i think it's good that there's outlets for that but i also i don't think that uh like the african-american experience is a is a product to be sold or i don't think it's cool to do this book you know like i didn't that's part of the things that's messy with this is it seems like trendy now to do this thing and i can say oh well i've been working on this for a long time you know but uh which is true but I sort of fell into this weird moment. But like my kind of troubles began around this project a couple of years ago and I tried to get grant funding for it. And they said, we're not giving you any money because you're a white person working on this book. This is in Oregon, you know, this is like the whitest woman in the world telling this. And she said, if you want to make a book about yourself and how you've been inspired by Muhammad Ali, that I think we could fund. And I was like, that's the shitty book. Like that's the <laughs> book we don't need more of, you know? So, I mean, essentially what this book is, is this is me, I'm the filter. I admire Muhammad Ali. I think this story uh, should be told in as many forms as possible. There's a million documentaries you can watch and books you can read about Muhammad So this is one of many. I don't have the ability to really like recreate, restructure a cultural understanding of Muhammad Ali. Um, 
but it's just trying to maybe bring it to a different audience. Um, I guess I just want to say, I mean, I'm not the person that gets to evaluate whether or not I've done this responsibly. That's true. That's true. But I think that's important, too. I think being humble about the fact that, A, it's not the last word, and B, you're not going to judge it. You, It's your project. You're doing the work. And then you're going to put it out in the world, and other people can make the sense of it that they make. And there won't be a single narrative in response. There will be many responses. Yeah. Before we end, I want to... But thank you for all that. That's really useful. Yeah, thank you. I hope I didn't make anyone angry. <laughs> Of course you did. Um, yeah, we have gone for quite a long time, um, but it's really great to see you. I wanted to show you this. This is a, a poster for our beloved Malik Alim, mm. our friend who died last summer. And we just had his birthday party. And I'll send you some photos from the birthday party because there's a lot of art that has been made about Malik, including cartoon art and... Um, and other things, but uh, we miss him greatly. We miss him on this podcast. We miss him in the world, in the movement. Um, but I know you, you and Malik had a lot of talks about being a father and and all those kinds of things. Well, yeah, we just had some brief exchanges. I think I think before my daughter was born, I was working on the logo. So he and I just going over about file types and stuff. But yeah, he said some incur. He basically we would email each other late at night. And I was like, oh, I'm really worried. I'm a late night person. I'm productive at night. But you're up late and you have kids. And he's like, yeah, you just don't get sleep. You know, you just decide not. <laughs> Good advice. But it was so, I mean, it was just so, like, he seemed so grounded in it. Like, and, you know, he knew a lot more than I did. So. Well, he, he was a really um, hands-on father, just as you are. And as I say, we miss him horribly. But uh, life goes on and we got to keep moving. Um in each of our lives, there's a time when everything is possible, and then there comes a time when nothing is possible anymore. Um, but in between, we create. You're a creator. Malik was a creator. Let's keep creating good things. Mm. Thanks so much. Thank you. Before we end today, we have a homework assignment. Read two graphic novels this week. Start with Ryan and move on to Alison Bechtel, Joe Sacco, Art Spiegelman, Aileen, or R. Crumb. Okay, folks, let's dive into the wreckage and swim as hard as we can in the direction of our dreams. Let's try to stay all the way human. Thanks to our friends at the Dazzling Podcast Ergo and to Malik Alim, producer, co-conspirator, friend, comrade, and engineer. Go forward, keep rising, and make your life a dynamic piece of sequential art. With joy in my heart and freedom on my mind, until next time. Under the Tree is hosted and written by Bill Ayers. It is edited by me, Jordan Allen. The theme music is by Tom the Night Watchman Morello. Artwork is designed by Ryan Alexander Tanner. Check out his website, ohyesverynice.com. And don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to Under the Tree wherever you get your podcasts. <laughs>